Welcome to today's episode of The Square, a curious conversation with Jennifer Abernathy, who is the Senior Principal Design Lead at Chick-fil-A. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, so I have to know, what does a Senior Principal Design Lead do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Um, really, really, it varies. So my focus is within the restaurant design group um, at Chick-fil-A. I personally focus on design strategy, future forecasting, um, and aligning that with our future restaurant design needs. So um, before we jump into some of the conversation on Chick-fil-A, I'm curious how you got into being a designer. Like what, what is it about being a designer that, that grabbed you and wouldn't let you go versus some other profession? Yeah, you know, um, I lucked out. Honestly, um, back in high school when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, um, I was lucky enough that I was introduced to an industrial designer who showed me around his office. He explained the career to me. Um, I had never heard of industrial design, but I knew I loved math. I loved architecture um, and I loved the arts. And it just kind of felt like that perfect combination of all of those things. And so um started at Georgia Tech where I had the option to do architecture or industrial design or mechanical engineering um, and really tested all three of them out and landed in industrial design and have just just loved it it's it's I think it's within my core I think it just really resonates with me even this much later in life so are you a Georgia Tech football fan I mean yes by default, but I could tell you well, so, so nothing about our team. I'm a Florida team. Gator fan, <laughs> and if we can sh if we can meet in the middle on our mutual hatred of Georgia in general, you know, of the Georgia Bulldogs, then oh, yeah. I think we'll be okay. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Um, all right, so before we get too far down the road, tell me a little bit about what industrial design covers, or, or maybe even more specifically, what an industrial designer does. That is a great question and one that I've been asked many times throughout my career, uh, most recently by my niece's Girl Scout troop. Um, so it was actually really exciting that it was even on their radar to ask what an industrial designer does. Uh, so I got to teach them all about it. So industrial design is the design of physical products, which sounds super, super vague, and it is because an industrial designer could design anything from a pen to a car to the chair you're sitting in um, and everything in between. They could design my eyeglasses, um, the, the door behind me. In my career, I've designed cabinet hardware, I've designed window coverings, I've designed food storage containers, um, all of that as an industrial designer. Uh, it includes the research, understanding what people need to make sure that your solution is truly resonating with the market need, with the, the end user need, um, drawing what you think that solution needs to look like, identifying the materials that it's made out of, the colors that it should have uh, to ultimately create the the best end product to put on the shelf that when you see it in store, you just have that reaction of, oh, I want that. <laughs> I want that. Um, 
And so that's what an industrial designer does. We get to create joy in people's lives through, through design, through creativity, and through curiosity. What, what was the first product you designed? Like the first thing that you think of as your first product? Well, funny you should ask, because I keep it on my desk, which is where I am. I have it framed. Awesome. Can you guess what these are? Uh, Put you on the spot here. Is that a... <laughs> okay, granted, it's 20 feet away from me, and it's a small picture. Is that... Is it a toothbrush? <laughs> I don't know. No. Um, it is... And so this is, this is where it gets into design is everywhere. You don't even notice it. So for years, I designed window treatment, so curtains, shades, blinds, um, horizontal, vertical. And what that is, is it's actually the handle that goes on the bottom of the rod that you use to open and close yeah. your blinds. Um, and so what was really fun about that project, while it seems like such an insignificant thing, was that it was A, an opportunity to brand our product, which if you think about the window coverings in your environment, mm -hmm. you probably can't find the brand on them. If it's on there at all, it's probably somewhere not visible. Um, but in a subtle way, we were able to brand it. We were able to differentiate it from our, our competitors. Um, and we were able to explore the materiality of it. So they're actually metal cast uh, knobs, creating a different and higher end experience as you physically um, interact with your blind versus the typical plastic, just kind of straight rod that you typically see. I know that you're in Atlanta now, but you, you were actually here in, in Dallas for a little while working for BCBS and uh, the C1 Innovations Lab. Tell me a little bit about that. I, it sounded like you guys did some really cool things. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I started my career as an industrial designer and quickly realized that I needed to expand my horizon. I needed to learn more about business. So I actually went back to school to get my MBA. Um, and that's what really got me into healthcare kind of by accident. But ultimately got into design, just wanting to make an impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. And healthcare just has so much opportunity to mm. bring human-centered design, design thinking into it to improve the experience, improve outcomes. And so when Blue Cross Blue Shield was opening their innovation lab, C1 Innovation Lab in Dallas, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to dive in to help open up this lab of cross-functional individuals, um, including graphic designers, product designers, service designers, um, project management, data science, sales, clinicians, benefits experts, all working together to solve those biggest challenge of, of our patients, of people across the US. Um, using that human-centered design lens to really dive deep into the user needs before creating these solutions and testing them and iterating upon them. So did you, was part of your role leading those teams? Yep, yep, so while I was there, I was the director of research and design. Um, so I led that cross-functional team of designers, researchers, data science, sales, and we worked very closely with our large um, employer groups to solve their employees' biggest healthcare challenges and went through design sprints, rapid design sprints, to solve for them and then pilot them at a very you know, low fidelity and then scale them up 
if they were successful and then launch them through the business. So I'm curious because, um, you know, I, I know that it breaks away a little bit from the discussion as a designer, but having that many different people um, with creative and probably strong opinions, how do you go about building consensus as a, as a leader? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, it was a combination of creatives and, you know, not traditionally thought of as creatives, but mm. I'd argue all creative nonetheless. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's so much value in bringing those diverse thoughts together, those diverse perspectives as we're creating these solutions, because then we're able to really think of them more holistically, really dig into kind of the nuances and the drivers behind them, making sure that we're solving for the actual cause, right? And not sticking a bandaid on it. Um, yeah. And so in terms of kind of gaining consensus, I'd say two things. One is we really, really let the research guide us. So really listen to the end user and their insights and their stories and their needs and let that drive the solutions. Um, but in addition, you know, relationship building, honestly, just having that trust and that safe space that mm -hmm. is so important in all design environments to be able to be vulnerable and put out those crazy ideas and then to also be able to challenge each other in a respectful and professional manner um, was really, really important and to have those difficult conversations when necessary. So I'm, I'm curious because, you know, one of the things that the Curious Conversations tackles is human-centered design and, you know, certainly um, it's an easy application with the healthcare industry to be able to think about human-centered design because, you know, that's quite literally the health of humans is, is what they deal with. Um, can you give me a, a little bit of your, um, what you think the overall process of human-centered design is and, and maybe how it carries across from something that's very, you know, human-centered like healthcare to something that is still human-centered but in a different way in terms of commercial and retail? Yeah, absolutely. So. To me, at the core of human-centered design is really digging deep in the research. So ensuring that you're understanding, walking in the shoes of the end user with as few preconceptions as possible. Of course, we all bring our bias to the table, right? You can't right. eliminate that. Um, but to really kind of take in their experiences and to really truly empathize with what they're experiencing. Um, so that's kind of at the core of it. So starting with that research, secondary, primary research, so understanding, in this case, the healthcare industry, whatever that um, diagnosis or challenge was that we were going after, and then digging into primary research to both observe, speak to, um, and follow the journeys of the individuals experiencing it. That way, when you move into ideation, you're solving for the end user's challenges, in this case, the patient's challenges, and not for what we assume their challenges are. Um, and I think that's the most critical part of human-centered design, is really allowing us to step back from what we may have come to the, come to the problem assuming or expecting to see, and allowing the research to guide those solutions. And so after ideating, developing a super low fidelity prototype, 
We, and I say super low fidelity, at C1 my favorite example was we actually used balls of yarn to represent <laughs> fresh garden vegetables and fruits. And we brought in end users to test this prototype and walk through it, and they got it, which sounds so yeah. crazy, right? But when you say, here's your fresh you know, produce, Johnny, um, yeah. they get it. And you know, our childish, childhood imagination just kind of comes back. And so to be able to create that low fidelity allows us to iterate really, really quickly. And ultimately, it's a much lower investment than if we jump straight to the high resolution prototype. Um, yeah. And so we can tweak it until it really resonates with the end user. Or we learn like, you know what, you're way off. Let's nix this solution, start over. And that's just as valuable because you, know, you gain, gain learning before launching something into the market that may not solve the challenges that you're trying to address. Um, yeah. And then the other piece of your question, so how does that translate into something like retail? Um, so being at Chick-fil-A now, thinking about quick service restaurants and um, applying that same mindset and thought process, really I think it's a mindset, um, is equally important. So I think, especially looking at the past 12 months, really putting ourselves in the shoes of our customers as we fight COVID and we manage around social distancing and wearing of masks and providing food and safety to the communities, right? Um, to make sure that we're really putting the customer at the center of all of those decisions and putting them first in everything that we do. It's incredible to think it's already, I think, a challenge, a really interesting challenge to do that when you have them in your environment of being in the store. When you think about them being outside of that environment and being in home or in their environment and still wanting to you know, have that, that um, best customer service, best in class customer service experience that Chick-fil-A is known for, I, I, I have no doubt that's been a bit of a challenge. Um, I am curious, are there, as you have um, l you know, used some of that um, experience and, and whatnot from C1 and you've moved to Chick-fil-A, are there, are there things that have surprised you or, or maybe even, um, you mentioned biases or data gaps, are there biases or data gaps that surprised you making that transition over to you know, uh, retail and food? That's a great question. Um... If anything, honestly, I was impressed by the amount of quantitative data that's being used in the restaurant space um, in connection with the qualitative data uh, to solve these challenges. Where at C1, like I said earlier, we had designers, data scientists, and you know we were really bringing that together which you know, as a, an insurance company had access to a ton of um, numerical data, quantitative data, right. um, but had been really, really surprised and impressed by how much Chick-fil-A brings into their decision making as well. Um, uh, so full disclosure, um, I, in a different life, I produced uh, food photography for Chick-fil-A. The, the food photographer was out of Dallas. 
And um, one of the things, uh, besides getting to eat all the Chick-fil-A food that we wanted when we were filming, um, one of the things that was really impressed upon me was um, their commitment to truth in advertising. So for a lot of different food clients, you know, you do things that would you would never want to eat <laughs> the food that is shot and photographed. Oh. They'll put armor all on tortillas, and you know, there's three or four you know food preppers that all they do is make the food look amazing and stand up under the lights. I mean, there's practical reasons for it too. But when we came to do the Chick-fil-A food photography, you know, they would they would cook a hundred or so nuggets the way you would cook it in the store just to find the two or three that they wanted to use in the chicken mini shot, right? So it's, <laughs> it, was, it was not something that was prepped any different than anyone would get in the store, um, and then we got to eat the leftover nuggets. Um, but how, how the, the truth in advertising and their commitment to that was, was super impressive. Um, is that, how is that carried through in the design? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I, love that, I love that story because it really, really captures kind of the soul of the company and in anything that we're creating, we're designing, developing, there's behind it this intention to be truly authentic, to be, um, like you said, to not be kind of like that, that plastic food in the photographs that you see, yeah. right? Um, and really ensuring that we're, we're committed to the end user, we're being very honest and supportive um, that ultimately caring for our customers, caring for our team members, um, and ensuring that what we're putting out there, in, this, in your example, photos of chicken minis, um, yeah. represent what you're going to get um, and not showing up at the restaurant and getting something that doesn't look at all like the photo that you saw on a commercial. I think one of the things that I've also been really interested in is how increasingly the digital angle has um, not just been something that's accentuated the customer experience in a lot of different in a lot of different sectors but one that's really expected um, and um, the, you know the chick-fil-a app is, is a is a great app there's a lot of different food companies and various companies that have apps but how do you from a design standpoint how do you how does that the design of the app tie into the experience oh yeah no that's it's it's integral um and the way i think about it is that you know i'm focused on the physical environment on place making right but the digital capabilities in the app for example help enhance that experience help us to customize that experience um you know of course right now very very few dining rooms are opening across the country right and so the access to mobile ordering, to curbside pickup, um, the efficiencies developed in the drive-through have been possible because of that technology. Um, the app specifically, you know, it'll provide recommendations. It remembers your orders, makes it more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, you know, it brings, you know, again, kind of that authentic care and that sense of kind of a genuine community support like the app knows you um, but not in that big brother watching kind of way that sometimes we yeah. feel through technology um, but you know t 
tying that, that experience from the app through the physical experience um, is absolutely integral to, to all the work that, that's going on right now. So I'm curious, um, I, actually, I, I guess I have two questions. When you walk into a Chick-fil-A store, is there a, a design element or, or something that stands out to you that's, you know, um, either something you've worked on or something that you're like, ah, I really, I really like that. That really makes me feel good. That's a great question. Um, we have what we call, um, and I what this was done before I joined the company. I can't take any credit for it, but it's called a gathering table. And it's going back to that idea of authenticity. It's made of real wood. So, you know, it's not those faux materials that you see at so many fast food mm -hmm. restaurants. Um, and it's, it's built and finished um, by hand. And so really brings to life kind of that authentic feel. But even more than that is that it's a larger table. It's kind of the centerpiece of the dining room where a group can come together. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your soccer team, um, which right now is so hard to even envision having you know, that large <laughs> group is. together. <laughs> but um, you know, if you can rewind 12, 13 months to when that was an okay thing to do, um, just to have that energy all kind of in one place and the design, how that's kind of, like I said, kind of the centerpiece and there's this beautiful chandelier over it that really brings the emphasis on that location. Um, I think it just brings to life that idea of supporting the community. So like I said, mm -hmm. maybe it's after a soccer team win or um, after going uh, to a recital, but you're bringing that that moment to life through the physical space. All right, last Chick-fil-A question, I promise. Um, when you go to Chick-fil-A, what do you order? What's Ooh. your favorite thing on the menu? Hands down, it's spicy deluxe chicken sandwich, no pickles, really? Chick-fil-A sauce, waffle fries, sweet tea, no ice. And if I have no shame, cookies and cream milkshake, no whip, no cherry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm, you, you lost me on the no pickles, but you got me back on the cookies and cream milkshake. I love okay, that. Okay, okay. Um, okay, so, so transitioning a little bit away from Chick-fil-A, you know, we're, we're filming this in the month of March, um, and uh, there, it's National um, Women's History Month. Are there some unique challenges that you think, that either you or that you think women face in the design field, and, and how, how are you overcoming them? Yeah, yeah, so that's always a timely question. Um, the design field has been predominantly male. Uh, the first design team I joined out of college, there were probably, I'm going to say 10 to 12 individuals on the team, myself and one other woman on the team. And so that's always kind of been the norm. But while simultaneously design as an industry, as a whole, as a function is and has been fighting to, I'll say, gain a seat at the table. So mm -hmm. joining the C-suite, having that say, um, helping others see the huge value that design brings to the success of a business. It's kind of this balancing act of, you know, helping elevate women and bringing more women into the design industry, into the function. Um, while also elevating design. And so, um, 
You know, I think a lot of it's, like I said, I just stumbled across it. Didn't even know it was a thing until I happened to meet an industrial designer through a connection. Um, unfortunately, you know, in most design fields, I'd say there are, there are a couple exceptions. It's, it's still very, very male dominant. Mm -hmm. Are there things that, that you think um, female designers can do to help cultivate a, a, um, a, a broader path for those that come behind you? Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I think it, it starts with supporting one another, um, helping to mentor those younger designers, those who, those who follow, or even our peers, right? Um, and helping to build each other up simultaneously I'd say, you know, stereotypically women are more humble and less likely to share their successes broadly. And I think that's something that we just need to kind of, I'll say, get over. I don't say that without, mm -hmm. empathy, without empathy, but that we need to push through to ensure that people are, are hearing our stories and seeing women at the top or, you know, moving up in organizations within the design field and showing that opportunity um, so that there is more um, trust and awareness around the ability to be a successful designer as a female. A few months ago on The Square, this topic of, of Nobel Prize winners came up and um, it was there was a survey they went out and all of them seemed to have really um, both interesting but completely opposite hobbies that they did from what they were known for in their Nobel laureate work. Um, what, what are some things that you do in your off time that you know either just kind of let your mind decompress or maybe even inspire some creativity? Oh man, um, well thank you for comparing me to a Nobel laureate. <laughs> I am honored, I am humbled, I appreciate that. Oh, no, I tease. Um, so, the honest answer is um, I am a lifelong learner. So I'm actually constantly going back to school, taking classes. Um, right now I'm working on a master's in interior design. So that really takes up most of my free time. <laughs> <it does. laughs> um, I seem to recall a time before I started this program though, when I had hobbies. Um, <laughs> And, you know, things, things like I have two dogs, walking my dogs, training my dogs, um, spin, cycle, stuff like that. Um, really nothing, nothing crazy, I don't think. Um, no, no secret musical artist desire somewhere? <laughs> for sure not. Um, <laughs> the one hobby that, well, I, I will share with you you keep it secret. I won't tell anyone, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> was uh, when I lived in Dallas, I played a lot of bocce ball. I was in the major league bocce league in Dallas. Um, kind of a really? big deal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just a, a social event, but we always had a great time. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, <laughs> So you had talked a little bit earlier about um, biases, and, and, and I'm fascinated. We, we had a, an episode where we were talking with um, Samantha Flores, who's the director of Hugo, and we were talking about 
all these different biases. It's it's one of the the um, topics of the curiosity report this year, and I was reading through it, and there were I mean. I understand the idea of an unintentional bias, but there were like 15 different biases that I just had no idea about. Uh, as a designer, how how are you able to to try and compensate for something that, or, or address something that you may not even know you have? Yeah, that's, that's a huge challenge, honestly, um, for, for anyone. And you kind of hit the nail on the head at the end of your question of that you don't even know you have because I'd say the most important first step is becoming aware of those biases. Um, and part of that is being vulnerable and trusting individuals around you, whether it's to point it out or kind of test things out, make sure that you have a diverse group working on design solutions, that we shouldn't be doing this in a silo. I shouldn't be working with all blonde women to design mm -hmm. anything, right? Um, who have a design degree, uh, wanna make sure that we're bringing people with different backgrounds from different cultures, from uh, different functional areas to kind of check those biases um, that, you know, that's that's really the big, the big risk. So I'd say to be aware and to ask those around you to kind of help you become aware if you're not um, and to ensure that you have also like a, a system in place through your peers uh, to I'll say keep you in check when when you're designing things when you're synthesizing and analyzing um, your outcomes your research and solutions that's awesome I think you, you mentioned it before um, the more we talk about it, you know, in, in various conversations, I, I, the more I realize empathy and listening become two huge keys to, to not just understanding potential biases, but just to creating environments that people feel comfortable in. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I alluded to this earlier, but I think that that idea of empathy is exactly why when I think about human-centered design, it's less of a process and it's more mm. of a mindset that you need to come at it with an open mind, that you need to think about who's going to be using it, what kind of mindset they'll be in, what other things are kind of going through their mind, right? Um, versus, okay, I did A, B, C, D, E, and I'm done. One, because it's, it's never linear. Uh, it's super iterative, so you might do A, B, C, A, D, B, C, D, E. Um, yeah. And, and even going through that process, if you're not coming at it with that open, empathetic mindset, then you won't be successful in that solution because you won't be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Um, one example that really, really brought that to life to me while I was at C1 was um, we were doing a project on diabetes and trying to understand the biggest challenges of individuals struggling with that condition. Um, and, you know, my preconceptions that it would be some sort of physical health piece. Um, one of the biggest things that actually rose to the top in terms of patient needs was 
around mental health, around behavioral health, um, and the stigma around having diabetes and, and struggling through that while also struggling with this physical condition. Um, and so by going into that research with that empathetic mind was able to really learn so much beyond what I had ever imagined um, we'd be able to hit on in that project. So um, tell me a little bit about what's, what's a project you're working on that excites you? Yeah. Um, so, you know, no surprise in the restaurant industry. Um, we're really focused on what does life look like, you know, during COVID and post COVID. Um, and yeah. so we've certainly seen a lot of rapid change at our restaurants to respond to closed dining rooms, to allow for safe social distancing, contactless experiences. Um, and so while we've unfortunately been in this state for quite some time now, we also need to think about what does life look like after COVID? And there's kind of the immediate after COVID, you know, where we're vaccinated and um, we can kind of go back and out into public restrictions are lifted. But what's our mindset then versus maybe two years after? Because we're still experiencing grief, shock. Um, we've developed these new habits because this has been going on for as long as it has, right? And so it's that combination of kind of like the psychology and the theoretical and applying that to that future state, um, almost trying to predict where we'll be in two, three, four, or five years and what we'll need from restaurants at that point because our experiences with restaurants have changed so much over the course of the pandemic. So what's something you're hoping in the next five to 10 years, and it doesn't have to necessarily specifically be in the, the restaurant design field, but maybe just industrial design as well, um, that, that you wanna see either change or, or kind of come about in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, something that is always top of mind, but you, know, you brought it up before, it is Women's National, National Women's Month, right? Um, mm -hmm. is ensuring that women are not only represented as designers, but as end users. And so um, mm -hmm. there are a number of case studies out there. Um, a, a book that's become popularized recently uh, called In Invisible Women um, talks about a number of them, but women have been, as a gender, overlooked for the design of many products and experiences, that there's, they've been um, addressed as the exception rather than the rule. And so one example of that being in the automotive industry where um, typically women are shorter than men. You can't tell on camera, but I'm really tall, so I'm that exception. But um, <laughs> most women are shorter than men. And so as you think about the like space, the location of, your, of the driver's seat with the steering wheel and um, the airbag coming out, it's not safe for, for smaller women. It's really not safe for pregnant women. Um, and until startlingly recently, it wasn't required to have 
female test dummies in the automotive industry. Another example that um, from my healthcare days that I learned about was that a number of medication clinical trials will be done solely on men because women's bodies fluctuate so much from hormone changes, right? Um, that it's more difficult to understand the impact of the medication on women than on men. Um, and so then what happens when women take that medication? Sometimes yeah, exactly. you don't know. Um, and so that to me is one of the, the really important big fights that we need to make in terms of design is ensuring that all groups, all identities are being represented when creating a solution. Um, that, you know, again, we talked earlier about bringing women into design and I think that's, that's integral in making that push to, to ensure that women are, are considered for that end result. Um, but when you think about the ergonomics of a physical design, of industrial design, of products, um, even things like voice recognition are, are typically trained on men's voices and so they listen better to a lower tone voice than to a women's hmm. higher pitched voice. Um, and so little things like that, that uh, people don't necessarily realize or even think about when they're doing it, unintentional yeah. bias, right? Um, come, come to life and sometimes have detrimental impacts on the, the usage of that end product. So what, what is something that designers can do? Because I know, you know, so much change happens with just one person, you know, making a small change and multiple people making small changes and then big change happens. What is something that a designer can do to see that realize that unintentional or intentional bias change um, to account for those other perspectives over the next five to 10 years? Well, that's the million dollar question. If it was easy, then I'd like to think yeah. that it would have been done already, right? Um, I think, you know, one of the most important ways of coming into design is to be empathetic, going back to that word that you brought up earlier, um, to, to come into it with an open, truly open mind, not expecting anything um, something that that we've done from like a tactical standpoint when we do find ourselves having preconceptions is you know what put it in the parking lot write on a sticky write on a post-it and put it on this this corner that we've labeled the parking lot um, we were not going to look at it but you got it out of your head you got it out of your system so helps us acknowledge those biases um, while not bringing it into the research or the solution. Um, and just you know, making sure that we're surrounding ourselves with people who aren't the same as us. Um, you know, I talked about that in the work environment, but I mean, even just in our, in our daily lives, um, it helps us be more curious, helps us to, to understand the nuances that are easy to maybe overlook if we're not entrenched in those differences. 
Um, but, you know, really ensure that those perspectives are being brought together um, and asking questions. Uh, you know, curiosity, I yeah. think, is really, really an important characteristic for designers, um, especially when you think about human-centered design, is to come at everything with a sense of curiosity and a desire to learn. Um, and so practicing those muscles, one of, one of my go-to phrases is, just tell me more, uh, that, that's fascinating, tell me more about that. Um, and I can't, it, it's helped me learn so much, both through my research and just through my personal life, by coming at experiences, new and old, with that curious mindset. Well, I can think of no better place to leave it than on a curious note. Thank you, Jennifer, for this conversation and for sharing your insight. And thank you for listening or watching. If you are watching this on YouTube, you're getting a truncated version of this podcast. So make sure you check out the audio version for the entire conversation. And the link for that is in the description below. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.